0: Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. I am really, really glad to talk today with our friend Tim Keller, who, as most of you listening to this know, was the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City and is the co-founder and chairman of Redeemer City to City. And, Tim, thanks for being with us today on Signposts.
1: Thanks for asking me to come talk to you, Russell.
0: I was struck thinking about the death of uh, Eugene Peterson earlier this year about um, an anecdote that he talked about in his, uh, his autobiography, The Pastor, about uh, preaching, and his son said to him, uh, yeah, that was your sermon. And at first, he was really offended by it because he, he said it was as though his son was saying that he preached the same thing all over again. But later, his son explained, no, it was that there was a coherent thread uh, to everything that he had he had ever been about. And he could sum it up in, in one sermon. If you thought about your own life, how would you describe your sermon, the core of what it is that, that you have had to, to say to the world? How, how do you think you would describe that?
1: Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, by the way, I, I do think that's true, by the way, that most most preachers have— well, actually, I used to say most preachers— have two or three sermons. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two or three main messages, and there's a tendency for them to get there pretty quickly. I, I would say a bad preacher is somebody who starts with a text and gets to one of their three messages almost immediately mm-hmm. and doesn't really let the text completely uh, control the sermon. So, uh, I, and I, I think if you're a better expository preacher, you don't always end up saying the same thing. But in my case, it would probably be... Um, you know, grace renews nature, which is Bavink. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's grace that um, uh, we're saved by and not by our works. And it renews not only, it doesn't just save us, but it actually renews every part of life, not just the soul and the spirit, but also the way in which we live. And eventually it'll renew the, the new heavens and the new earth. So... I don't know. I mean, my guess is that that, that's that's from Herman Bovink, that idea that grace renews nature Mm -hmm. is probably a good summary of it, I think. Uh, So I'll I'll leave it with that. Nobody's asked me that. Mm. So congratulations, you get a cigar. (laughs) It's not not a normal question, so that's my best answer, I think. Okay.
0: Well, I I can't use the cigar, but I'll give it to a Presbyterian friend, I think. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, I, would, I would talk today about uh, talking to secular people. Uh, you, of course, have been involved in that in a variety of ways, not just in terms of preaching in New York City, but also in your writing, as often directed toward uh, secular or ish or secularizing uh, sorts of people with, with Christian witness. I've found that a lot of people that I talk to who are Christians— Simultaneously, don't take secularization seriously enough. So they think if we just do the same thing more, uh, this will yeah, reverse itself. That's right. That's and right. that they take it too seriously in the sense that they think that there's really nothing. There's no way for me to speak to or to connect with uh, people in my in my community who don't have a, a religious background. How how should we start? Sort of for for. Everyday, regular Christians who would say, I really don't know how to have a massive apologetic answering every possible scientific or philosophical objective, what would you say to them to just sort of get them working toward engaging with, with more secular people with the gospel?
1: Um, well, I think Christians too quickly think that evangelism is answering people's Question. So, mm-hmm. what about evil and suffering? You know, do you really think? You know, how can how can you believe in a, uh, a religion that says you're going to hell if you don't believe in Jesus? Mm-hmm. So, there's a whole list of you might know, say answering people's questions, and then of course, there's questions about homosexuality. Are you anti-gay? So you have a whole list of questions. And uh, I do know a lot of the reason why a lot of Christians are actually afraid, like you said, to talk to secular people, is those are actually some pretty hard questions. Mm-hmm. And they are afraid of getting asked a question that they won't be able to answer. And um, you know, Michael Ramson, who's um, with Ravi Zacharias Ministries, he actually does say that the reason why people don't open their mouths, especially with secular people, is they're, they're, they're got a, they've got a couple of questions that they know they're going to get asked, and they're afraid to get those questions because they don't know how to answer them. Hmm. And I think I think work. It is true that you do have to equip Christians. There are good answers to those questions, but. I think you have to start further back with secular people in relationships. Not in meetings, not in public meetings where you get up and speak and even though I do that all the time, that's what I like to do. But with secular people you have to start back before you frankly, before you answer their questions, you have to question their answers. Hmm. Because they have answers which they don't think of as faith answers, but they have faith answers to the questions of what's how do you find meaning in life? How do you get satisfaction? uh how do you get a stable identity what's the basis for working for justice mm-hmm. you know what is our hope so you can't live without meaning satisfaction freedom identity justice hope you can't live without those things and there is no scientific answer to those questions of how you get those things any these operating answers to these big questions of what's your meaning in life they're fa- they're based on faith mm. they're they're at least quasi religious even if you're not institutionally religious and they actually generally don't work. The way in which secular people get their meaning in life, it gets totally destroyed by suffering. Uh, actually, everybody—like Christians, Muslims, Hindus, everybody—every uh, religion does a better job of equipping its members to deal with suffering because it gives you a meaning in life that suffering can't hit. Mm. Whereas secular people don't have that. So you see, what I'm saying is, is what you really need to do with secular people is you need to know them as friends you need to be patient to really get to know them kind of friends organically, not in bringing them to meetings where they are going to get apologetic presentations. You need to know them as friends, and as you're moving through life with them, you start to question their answers. Say, that doesn't seem to be working for you, and be able to talk about the different resources that Christianity gives for meaning and identity and that sort of thing. We're not actually good at that either, but I'm saying that you start further back with secular people, You start in more relational situations rather than, you know, preaching in public presentations. And before you try to answer their questions, you question their answers. Hmm. So that's a little bit of a long answer to if I was teaching about it, I would take about an hour to explain what I meant by that, but that's it in a nutshell.
0: What about Bible? I, I was talking to um, a young man not long ago who was really shaken by a group of Latter-day Saints who had come in, come to his door, not because of, of what they were saying, but just because he said they were appealing to me from the Book of Mormon, he said, which, of course, uh, I don't receive as an authority uh, at all. And so it was just this, this circular sort of argument. The Book of Mormon says this, but I don't uh, receive it. And he said, it it kind of made me think, what about the way that I am using the Bible when I'm talking to people who don't receive the authority of the Bible? How do you know how and when to quote the Bible, to appeal to the Bible, when you're talking to people who don't receive the authority Mm -hmm. of it?
1: Well, I um, I think you should be careful. I mean, uh, if you look at the the audience adaptations in the speeches of Paul in the Mm -hmm. book of Acts— when he goes to a synagogue where you have both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles who believe in the authority of the Bible, his gospel presentation is an exposition of Scripture mm-hmm. because they already respect it. But when you go to Acts 14 and Acts 17, when he's talking to pagans, he doesn't start with Scripture. He actually questions their answers. He, he finds, uh, he does what has been called presuppositional apologetics, where he's looking at their assumptions, their presuppositions, which is just a fancy word for your faith assumptions about life, and questioning their whether they work, whether they're consistent. So he actually talks to them about their own beliefs and shows the problem and then gets and says, well, here's the solution in Jesus Christ, and then you bring in Jesus as the scriptures present him. Mm-hmm. So I, I have to say one year, I won't say where this is, one year I did a... Uh, I did a a series of evangelistic talks, evening talks. Uh, Christian students were bringing their non-Christian friends. They asked me to start with Scripture and do expositions, which I did. They were evangelistic, but I started with the Scripture. I read the Scripture. Three years later, I came back and did the same series, but I asked them, would you please let me start more where they are from with their issues and then bring in Scripture later? (laughs) Uh, It's still an evangelistic talk, and when I did that, they actually there was actually a bigger response to people who who said they'd come on to the following course I'm going back to doing doing it again the third time Russell, and this time they still want me to start with scripture mm-hmm. and I'm going to do it p- partly because i'm not to, I am not dogmatic about this um but when i I feel like you know partly because i'm I believe in predestination <laughs> mm-hmm. i I'm not afraid I'm ever ruining anybody's salvation by mm-hmm my method, but I actually think it's better not to start with Bible verses for people that just don't believe it. I do think, by the way, there's better stuff, there's better apologetic material for establishing the reliability and the trustworthiness of Scripture than there's ever been in my lifetime. Hmm. There's what good books you let. Well, I think there's some good books. I mean, look, for example, uh, the Richard Baucom stuff. Mm-hmm. Even his little, you know, nobody knows about this, you know, uh, Oxford University Press puts out something called The Very Short Short Introductions. Yes. And Bauckham wrote A Very Short Introduction to Jesus. Uh, It's like 100 pages, something like that. It's an Oxford University Press. And he basically, very gently but nicely, really tears apart the higher critical approach to the Gospels. Uh, then his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Oh, yes. that's uh, then there's, then, then, But then there's a couple other books recently have come out about the Gospels. Even Robert Alter. You know Robert Alter oh, yes. who wrote The Art of Biblical Narrative? Yes. Well, there was a New York Times Magazine article about him. He's 81 years old, and he's now come out with his magnum opus, which is a complete translation and commentary on mm-hmm. the Bible. And it, it says how in the 80s when his book, Art of Biblical Narrative, came out, and his basic book, I mean, he's a secular man. He's not even a believing Jew, I don't think. He's Jewish, of course, and he's a, an expert in in Hebrew narrative. But his basic point of the book is that the Bible is a... Co- Every Old Testament book is marked by coherent artistry. Mm-hmm. Unobtrusive, but coherent artistry. It's not a bunch of... It's not a mishmash. It's not a whole bunch of kind of incoherent, contradictory things that are all stuck together by an editor. And it the the article mentioned that back in the eighties, if you were an Old Testament scholar and you read Robert Alter, you couldn't tell your advisor right. you were reading him, right. because he was too positive about the Bible. I, all I know is I, I would say that over the last thirty years, there is more really high level scholarship that says, guess what, you can really trust this. Mm-hmm. So if you give me if you give me some time to talk to a secular person about the Scripture, I think I can make a better case than I ever could even say 20 or 30 years ago but I don't know that I would just start spouting verses at them no because Paul doesn't I mean I can show you from the Bible he doesn't start with expository preaching for uh, for evangelism so so would I don't you know think I'm getting that, you in trouble no no <laughs> uh, would, would
0: you think that that uh, D Martin Lloyd-Jones not in terms of the way that he did it but the basic structure of having a Sort of a Sunday morning teaching through the Bible for Christians, and then an entirely different uh, Sunday yes. night sort of for, for non Christians. That that's something that we should do more of.
1: Oh, I like that. Yeah. Well, I'm a real student of Lloyd Jones on that, and uh, as, as you know, Lloyd Jones started every single. If you get here recording, he started every single sermon saying, "I should like to call your attention this morning mm-hmm. to the words of the Apostle Paul in First Corinthians." Or he said, I should like to call your attention this evening to the words of the book of Amos, and, and then he would read it. And if he says, I should like to call your attention this evening, it's an evangelistic sermon. Mm-hmm. If he says, I should like to call your attention this morning, it's an edification sermon. But he, he, he strictly said, the, the evening sermon was not what you and I would call an apologetic evangelistic talk. Mm-hmm. It was... But he, what he did was, he preached the gospel both morning and evening, but in the evening he privileged non believers as the audience, knowing that this would also edify the believers present. Mm. And in the morning, he privileged the believers who were present, knowing it would actually evangelize the non believers who were present. But he privileged one audience over the other. And it was brilliant, I think. Uh, and uh, whenever somebody asked him, "Do you ever do evangelistic services at your church?" he said, "Yeah, every Sunday night." He... But he did know it wasn't—it wasn't a—it wasn't, wasn't for you know super skeptics who were going to ask a bunch of questions. It was for people I, from what I can tell who are on their way. They're kind of moving in that direction, uh, and there are a lot of people who. Would show up, be kind of skeptical, but of course he was such a great speaker mm-hmm. that drew you in. Then they come back, and over a period of five months, ten months, a year, they would find themselves moving toward belief. And in the evening was the place to go for that.
0: Yes, because I imagine you could pretend to be a Benjamin Franklin at a George Whitfield uh, uh, rally, but but you're really seriously considering what's what's taking place a little bit at the time. Yes. One of the things I've found with uh, was sort of the generation in which we live right now with evangelical Christianity is that there's kind of an overreaction to the old hyper-programmed sort of here's the tract, here's the way to go through it to to lead someone to Christ. So that I meet a lot of people who understand what it means to build relationships with secular people. They understand how to, to equip themselves in terms of apologetics, but they just can't ever get to, here's what the gospel is, repent and believe the gospel. Do you find that to be the case? And if so, how do we how do we make that that move?
1: Well, yeah, because the gospel is you're saved by not by what you do, but what Jesus has done. And you don't just repent of being a of having done bad things. You repent also of even the the wrong reasons you did good things, mm-hmm. and therefore you repent not only of being a sinner, but also being a, um, a self saver, a self justifier. Mm-hmm. And you have to say, finally you say, I now see that I've been trying to save myself and I turn to Jesus Christ to save me. There's a moment where that happens. Uh, you know, Dr. Lloyd Jones, by the way, used to actually say, he had a diagnostic question. He would ask people and he'd say, are you a Christian? And if they said, well, I'm trying, I don't know, but I'm trying. Mm-hmm. He's, he, he said, he says, I would know at that moment that I had no idea what a Christian was. Hmm. Because he said, you either are or you're not. Because being a Christian, if you're saved by grace and by Christ, not by your works, if you're saved by your works, it's a process, and you're never quite sure you're there. And you may be over the line, you may not be over the line. If you're saved by grace and by Christ, it's like getting married. You either are or you're not. you either taken your vow, and you've put yourself in the other person's arms, or you haven't. So it's a status. Yeah. And which becomes a righteousness inside you, an actual righteousness, but it starts as a new righteousness, which is you're clothed with like a, like a wedding garment. And, and he says, if you, if you think it's a process, you actually don't understand the gospel. Well, unless you say that to somebody at some point, mm-hmm. <laughs> that there is a line to cross, and you have to decide whether you've crossed it or not. And if you have, you have, and you need to cross it. See, that, that's bringing it to a point. And there is a, it does worry me with the, um, oh, I don't know how to say it, the younger, the emphasis on story, narrative, love, relationship, coming into a community, belonging before believing, that's all true. Mm-hmm. If really you're just saying uh, being a Christian is sort of believing in Christ and trying to be like him and trying to do justice in the world and try to repair the world and work for his kingdom, that's a process and that in the end is a kind of works righteousness. hmm and, and so if it's all process, you actually lose the gospel. There is a moment. And that line has to be crossed. And you have to say that. I yeah. don't think I've evangelized somebody unless I've said that. And I think a lot of folks somehow don't get there. Yeah. And you, so you're right. I'm concerned, too.
0: Well, and one of the things that – I was talking to a group of high schoolers um, not long ago, and I noticed they kept asking me questions about knowing that I'm talking to secular journalists and and people like that all the time, more than – in any given day, more secular people than Christian people, actually, just in in my line of work. They assumed that this would be a a really perilous uh, place to be with a lot of hostility. And I said to say, you know, most of the people that I talk to who are very, very secular people – are not hostile at all to me personally. And the more uh, open I am about what it is that I believe and, and what I think they should believe, there's, there's not a sense of insult usually uh, there. There's a, a sense of curiosity there. And even when I talk to people who are very hostile, What I find is if I spend enough time with them, usually there's a backstory of a really, really negative experience with some religious person. And I'm sure that you encounter that all the time. How should we address that? Especially, I mean, we're living in a time where right now there are so many horrible things that are going on in the name of Jesus and have gone on in the name of Jesus. And a lot of people have been hurt. How do we take that into account when we're talking to people who may have been deeply, deeply wounded
1: by religious people? Well, I mean, well, first of all, you're actually, I think there's two issues here. The reason why those young people are surprised is they don't do face-to-face stuff. They do stuff through social media. right? And there is no doubt that even the most hostile person on social media, if you're actually sitting in a room and talking, you're just not going to say the same inflammatory things. It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. It's just more... It, you, it, just, it just turns the temperature down enormously. And then, if you are willing, and this is, again, where I've heard some other people say, if somebody says they have an objection to Christianity, before you answer it, you need to say, I really will answer. I am not dodging that at all. I'm going to get back to it, but I'd love to know why that question matters to you. In other words, what you end up doing is you get a history of where the question came from. And so, by the way, let me give you a quick example. If somebody says... You know why would God allow such evil and suffering? I need to know whether this is a twenty-five-year-old graduate student who's uh, in philosophy and wants to kind of pick your brain because they're doing a they're doing a, a paper on theodicy, right? Mm-hmm. Or whether it's somebody whose a, a five-year-old child just died of a brain tumor. See, yeah. I want to yeah. know. Yeah. I want to know what's behind, because I can't even begin. To answer, and if the first, if it's the first, then I can be a little more direct and heady, and okay. like kind of you know, you know, get back and do the philosophical thing. But if it's somebody who's just experienced tragedy, I just need to slow down, yeah, and not start to defend God at all, and start to listen. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that does not happen on Twitter, right? It just uh, it can't happen on Twitter. And it can't happen on Instagram, and it can't happen on YouTube. It just doesn't happen. So what you have to say to young people is, you would be surprised at how much the temperature goes down and how once you find out the person's really been hurt by some other religious person, how you're able to diffuse that to some degree by actually just showing sympathy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: real sympathy. But that only happens face-to-face.
0: Hmm. You and I were talking one time at a Gospel Coalition Council meeting, and then later you gave an address about it just to to those of us who were there. But I, I think about it all the time, about this idea of moral ecology, uh, yeah. you know, for a long time, there's been the understanding we need to equip our children, teenagers, college students, others with a, a Christian worldview, which in a lot of cases has meant here are all the things you will encounter, and here are all the Christian ideas that that counter them. But in this idea of moral ecology, could could you just unpack that for people as to, as to what you mean when we talk about that?
1: Right. Well, a moral ecology means a, a complete environment, obviously. An ecology usually means a a balanced environment in which um you know if you're thinking biologically it means certain certain things eat other things and they die and then when they die they fertilize this that grows up and then other you know so it's a it's a kind of an interdependent system it's a system that actually is it propagates itself it's organic uh the idea behind the moral ecology is you don't really form christians as christians you don't form people who really think as Christians, and even feel like Christians, unless you create a total environment in which you're not only getting moral instruction, but there's also constant moral discourse, and there's also moral modeling. Mm. The, those three things. So, I mean, there's more to it, as you know, cause you may, if you remember the address, but I'll just give you those three. Moral instruction is where somebody says, you study the Bible, and it says, you lose yourself to find yourself. Uh, that uh, you must take up your cross and follow me. You, you, uh, you must put me first mm-hmm. and, and not your own. Okay, so you study that, and there it is in the Bible, and that's discipleship. But then moral discourse is, what does that look like? And also, uh, in, in daily life, uh, and also, uh, how, do you, uh, how do I process all the messages the culture is giving me? Yeah. So, for example, let me just give you an example. If I was doing moral discourse with young people and they were talking about things they saw this week, I would say that's interesting. So, For example, uh, somebody was t- talking about the fact that uh, Glenn Close won the Golden Globe for Best Actress and for her movie The Wife. And the movie is basically about a woman who sacrifices for her husband's career and in the end is all unhappy. And then she says at the Golden Globe, when she gets it, she says, my mother when she was 80, told me, I sacrificed for my family and I, have no, I had no accomplishments of my own. Hmm. And, and, and then she yelled and people, I think, you know, clapped and says we cannot do that for anyone. Women, we have to get our own fulfillment. We can't sacrifice for a family. Um, it's, and then uh, lately, a lot of people have been contrasting the two Mary Poppins movies. Mm-hmm. The 1964 Mary Poppins movie was with Julie Andrews and all was all about the fact that you had a man who was obsessed with his career in the bank and, and he was losing his family because he was putting his career ahead of his family and the whole message of the thing was he had to sacrifice his career in order to really get his children back. He had to say, I, I can't work this hard. I have to provide for my family but my family is more important than my career. Mm. Relationships are more important than my career. That's the whole message. Exactly the opposite of what Glenn Close said. And so what I would do with kids is, in moral discourse, I would say, go watch the Mary Poppins movie, which I'm sure you can get for $2.99 on YouTube or something like that, and then look at what Glenn Close says and says, it is possible for a woman to be oppressed. It is definitely possible for a woman to be abused and emotionally kept down. But but how does that narrative work in light of this story? So you let them compare stories. That's moral discourse. That's mm-hmm. not you see. And the moral model obviously is they the young people have to have to see uh, Christian character modeled in front of them. Mm-hmm. And if you have an environment like that, then you form Christian character. But if you just simply have a youth group once a, once a week and a and church once a week, and then they spend eight hours a day on social media in which they're they're being uh, completely immersed in the narratives of the culture. And they, there's no moral discourse that helps deconstruct those things and helps them understand a, def- a better way. You don't have a moral ecology. And I do think that that uh, the, the world has an ecology for our kids. It's a total environment. It's art, it's theory, it's slogans, it's everything. And all we have is, a, is bullet points on a blackboard or on a whiteboard. Uh, once a week or twice a week, we don't have an ecology. So that's that's what I mean by that.
0: So it seems to me that there are a number of things that would have to change. Uh, but one of those things would be sort of just the way we see our, our task. But the other would, frankly, be logistics and just time uh, in terms yeah. of time spent together as a body.
1: I think that's true. It also does mean though, you have to have – how do I say it? Sorry, here goes another word. Um, maybe we do another podcast on this. Well, James D- Davis and Hunter, our mutual mm-hmm. friend, yeah. there. you know James, right? Mm-hmm. He would say we also Christians don't have a, a cultural economy, mm. and a cultural economy is you've got people in the academy, you've got people in the arts, you've got people in journalism, you've got people in in uh, business, and what they're doing is they are actually they're doing really top notch scholarship. They're doing top notch uh, stories. There, there's plays that are being produced. There's and, and they're not necessarily a Christian when it's at the end, the person accepts Jesus into mm-hmm. their heart, but rather the the, the non-individual, you know, it's a worldview that's not based on expressive individualism. I mean, just to, to really oversimplify, mm-hmm. on the left, you've got a, make an idol out of individual freedom. Mm-hmm. On the right, you're making an idol out of the nation and the blood, the race. Yeah. In other words, you're ma- either making an idol out of the collective or the individual, and of course... God has got to be supreme. And when God's supreme, then you don't, you, you know, you're not individualistic, but you're also not a racist. Right. And, and so a, a, uh, a worldview that's pretty different than the modern worldview, what do stories look like there? What, do, what does scholarship look like there? So James would say, we actually don't have a cultural economy. We don't have a lot of great movies to show our kids. We don't have a lot of great stories. You know, they're not, they mm-hmm. can't be immersed in, in, because we're not producing it. So it's not just a matter of, it's, of the church spending more time together, though I think you're right about that. I really do think the church does have to be more of a true counter-community, and we'd have to be spending more time in each other's lives. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that. But it's also that, that the, the Christians are not producing enough cultural artifacts for our kids to be kind of living in there. So they're actually getting all the other stories and all the other music and all the other Stuff coming to them through social media, so it's a it's a formidable challenge in mm-hmm. front of us. When I was at uh,
0: probably, and I look back at the course of my ministry, one of the darkest times when I was just really discouraged, and frankly was right on the precipice of quitting. Uh, I had a conversation with you that really turned things around for me and uh, gave me the encouragement to keep pressing. And as I talk to people in ministry, uh, wh- whether it's lay ministry or, or, or clergy, I find there are a lot of people who come to those points where they think, should I just keep doing this or, or should I quit? Have you ever had those times, as you look back over your ministry, where you were wondering whether you should keep doing this? And if so, what,
1: what word of encouragement sort of kept you going? Well, wow. um, well. At one level, I would say, like a lot of pastors, every every May, I wanted to quit the ministry. <laughs> at one level,
0: right after Easter. At,
1: at, at, yeah, at one level, it was cyclical. That is to say, I used to have downtimes every year. It was uh, it had been a long time without a break. You know, you, it was not right after Easter. It was more like a month after Easter. Mm. Um, and it had been a long time, and I was very, very tired and for whatever reason, always seems to be things that would always go wrong in the church. i don't know why mm. it just always felt like there was there was going to be a there was going to be a a a problem or a difficulty or something so I would say i would at one level i I felt almost every year there would be some downtime in which I said, "Do I want to keep doing this mm. uh, that was generally speaking you know my wife would be aware of that, and she would um try to encourage me, pick me up, you know, we would, you know, she, I would say, I was actually say my wife would, would, would sense that. And, and even if she was unhappy, Mm -hmm. what she would know is right now, Tim's the one who's kind of down and I've just got to, I've got to encourage him. I've got to, you know, get some people into his life that he likes being, likes, likes to be with and that sort of thing. So she used to do a really good job. That I would say I don't know whether this is what you're looking for, Russell, and maybe it's a little too much oversharing. But when my wife was really, really, really sick, very sick, and we weren't sure what was going to happen to her, but this is a, over ten years ago now, there was a place in which I thought about quitting the ministry and maybe getting another job, feeling like I can't do this mm-hmm. if she's going to be this sick, and we weren't you know wasn't quite sure. It was that was where. I, And I didn't have any, here's a weird, I I was stuck. Maybe this will give somebody hope, I guess. When I was really thinking about leaving at that point, I really should have talked to somebody. But I felt stuck for two reasons. One is my wife's my best friend. Mm -hmm. And I felt like if I went and talked to somebody else about it before her, she would feel truly betrayed. On the other hand, I also felt that if I did say to her, I'm thinking about quitting the ministry because you're sick, that she would feel horrible. She mm-hmm. would say, I'm keeping you from doing what you do best. Yeah. See? So I couldn't talk to her, and I couldn't talk to anybody but her. And I remember thinking, I don't know. I may be wrong on this, but it, you know, th- looking back 10 years, I don't think I was wrong. I said, God, you're going to have to be enough for me right now, and I'm sure this has happened to other people. Because generally speaking, you don't go through a crisis without a friend. Right. Or a counselor or something. Right. But I really was afraid that I'd hurt the marriage or hurt my wife, and I I did get through. I wouldn't say it's a good, I don't think that's a good model for most people. Mm-hmm. I think it has to be an exceptional situation. But you asked me. Yeah. I haven't actually told anybody about that hardly. And, um, but I don't know if that encourages the listeners or not. So it was, a, it was a pretty tough time, yes.
0: Well, I'm glad you persevered. Your ministry means a great deal to thousands and thousands of people around the world and to me. And so we're really glad that you made it through those maze and pray that you will continue to do so. Thanks for, for being with me today, Tim. It's great to talk to you. Thank you, Russell. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts.